I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. After a 4th of July vacation, I'm back in the saddle, and we've got quite the episode for you. On this edition of the show, we'll be speaking with geneticist Adam Rutherford about his important new book, Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. Believe it or not, the idea of eugenics did not go away with World War II and the atrocities of the Third Reich. In many ways, the eugenics mindset, as Rutherford refers to it, still lingers on today in various parts of our culture. British philosopher John Gray says of Adam Rutherford's new book, Rutherford's scientific demolition of the eugenic project is brilliantly illuminating and compelling. His book will be indispensable for anyone who wants to assess the wild claims and counterclaims surrounding new genetic technologies. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Adam Rutherford, author of Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. Welcome to Parallax Views. I guess I'm really, really excited to be speaking with Adam Rutherford, author of Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. And Adam's a geneticist. We're going to be talking all about the history of eugenics. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. It's rainy here in London. So, Adam, if you could, I think sometimes people hear the word eugenics and they'll say, oh, that's just that old Nazi idea. That That's not something that we have to live with today. Those ideas are a thing of the past. I tend to disagree with people on that. I sort of see the language of eugenics cropping up sometimes, uh, just in our culture and our language. 
Uh, but maybe first we should delve into what exactly is eugenics if people are not really familiar with the term or they've only heard it in passing. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing that many people don't or haven't heard of eugenics, or if they have, it's just mostly associated with the, the atrocities of the Second World War and the Holocaust and the Nazis specifically. But I think more than anything, eugenics is a type of mindset. It's a type of way of thinking about how biology can be controlled, which is why the book is called Control, of course, uh, in order to improve the, the sort of quality, I'm doing air quotes for the listeners, of, of society, of, of culture. So it becomes formalized in the 19th century. And then and the word eugenics itself is invented in 1883, very specifically. But the history is much, much longer than that. And, and really dates back to well, all, all cultures, as far as we can tell, have had these sorts of thoughts. It's documented in Republic by Plato. So that's you know more than 2,000 years ago um, in, in many different works of, of classical literature. And as you allude to at the very beginning in the intro, it's a mindset that, uh, that still persists to a certain degree today in our public discourse, even though the word itself has become toxic because of its association with the Nazis. But basically, it's the idea that you can control biological reproduction and in doing so, improve the quality of a people. So in terms of the history of this idea, uh, could we talk a little bit about its origins? And also, I know people uh, associate it with the Nazis, uh, but you know this, this has been an idea held by various different groups. Um, historically. So could you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is, I think, again, often most closely associated, if anyone, if people have heard of it at all, it's most closely associated with far right-wing politics and fascism and, and indeed the Nazis themselves. But the truth is that as it became popular in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was embraced by the progressive left by developing socialist ideas, as well as right-wing ideologies. In fact, it was embraced across political, across the political spectrum and across class and culture, not universally, but close to many people thought this was going to be the answer to our many societal problems, particularly in the UK, where I'm based now, but also very much in, in the US, where it was embraced wholeheartedly, where big issues of the day, many of which are still the big issues of today, mass immigration, the visible expansion of the poor, um, colonial expansion, particularly for for if you're if you're British, was the you know sort of a, a dominant idea. Where the poorest members of society are cared for in Britain, the laws had been basically the church looked after those 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 people. But in the 19th century, that was transferred slowly to the state. And so, as the colonies are expanding, if you're British, or as mass immigration is becoming the dominant political issue of the day in very late 19th and early 20th century America, they turned to the scientists to provide tools, mechanisms, scaffolds to justify you know, existing political ideologies. And that's, what, that's why eugenics sort of took hold. It was, it was born in the wake of Darwinian thoughts on evolution, as far as I'm concerned, are the correct way to describe evolution of life on Earth. I'm very much a Darwinian scholar. It but sounds like it's very tied to the idea of social Darwinism. 
It, it is. And social Darwinism has very little to do with actual Darwinism and, and comes really as a, as a definition much later um, and, and often is used as a stick to beat Darwin himself with and the ideas of evolution, which are as correct as any laws of, of science. But the application of I mean, social Darwinism is just, is just the, the, the notion that we are malleable, mutable species, as all species are, and we can engineer societies using reproductive control in order to shape them. The real question of why eugenics is a political rather than a scientific um, uh, creed is the fundamental question that's at the heart of eugenics is who gets to decide. And so eugenics really is an expression of power. Who, If you're going to restrict the reproductive freedoms of certain people because they're not deemed worthy of reproducing, or we don't want their type in our society, then the question is, well, who gets to decide who those people are? And in every case, it's the powerful imposing their will on the powerless. So eugenics from its birth is a pseudoscientific answer to a political question. Could you talk a little bit about the figure, and I know he looms large in this book, of uh, Sir Francis Galton? Yes, I can. I, I mean, I, I chuckle at this because this is a guy who's been part of my life since I was 18. I, I went to University College London as an undergraduate to study genetics in the Galton Laboratory, and I was taught by the Galton professor in the Galton Lecture Theatre. Now, all of those things are now gone, although weirdly, my salary is still by, paid for by his legacy fund. And I teach very anti-Goltonian ideas, which I think is funny. He probably wouldn't. Galton is um, he's Charles Darwin's half-cousin. So they share a grandfather. And he's part of this very successful family, the Wedgwood-Darwin-Galton clan. They, you know, a very uh, established, rich family that produces some of the greatest thinkers of the 19th and 20th century, including Charles Darwin himself. Galton is freed from financial constraints as a young man when his dad dies. They were gunsmiths and Quakers, which is a combination I've never quite managed to square, that Quakers being effectively pacifists, but they made the money through, um, through making weapons. But anyway, Galton is independently wealthy. As a young man, he travels around Africa and, and Asia, comes back to the to Britain and writes a best-selling travel book. Um, but unlike the um uh un unlike the, the notion that traveling broadens one's mind and makes one more liberal about your fellow humans, Galton came back more racist and more white supremacist than when he left. Now, you know, we, we have to contextualize this because I imagine that some of your listeners will be thinking, well. Everyone was more racist back then. Definitely true. Everyone was more sexist back then. Definitely true. Um, we don't judge people from the past by our contemporary standards, but we can contextualize their views by looking at the views of others of their time. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that Galton was an extreme racist and white supremacist for his time. One reason I can say that with confidence is because Darwin was his half cousin and was an abolitionist and was very liberal. So he comes back and he's convinced of his own position in society as a member of the ruling classes and as a member of the Darwin family. He's very enamored with his cousin and his cousin's success and celebrity. Now, The Origin of Species, first chapter, is not about natural selection. It's about artificial selection, right? So farming and breeding, and it's a demonstration 
that species are not immutable. They can change over time through selective pressures, right? So Dalton goes, well, we can do that to humans as well. We are faced with all these societal problems. Why do we not apply statistical, numerical, and evolutionary thought to changing the structure of society so that we have more people of desirable qualities, including intelligence, and fewer people of undesirable qualities, right? And that sounds like a good thing, right? That's a, that's a reasonable proposition. The problem is, like I said a minute ago, who gets to decide? And in all cases, it's the ruling powers that get to decide who gets to reproduce. So it's a it's a hegemonic power re reinforcement that is that is what he's doing so he writes a, his first sort of baby steps into this field is with a book called heredity hereditary genius and it's a, it's a very interesting read that book 1869 in it he he tracks the the pathway the inheritance pathways of genius in families only talking about men who are the great classical um, uh, classical musicians and composers, um, scholars, judges, lawyers, politicians. And what he's trying to do is establish that genius runs through families, well, runs through the male line of families, and in a very predictable and statistically robust way. So he's applying new and inventing new statistics in order to show that these are innate characteristics. You think, well, okay, genius is a bit of a fuzzy concept anyway. So it's, it's not as, I wouldn't cast that as a sure footing to start off with. But the second, <laughs> the second thing is that, and I love this about him. He's an old, I, I think of him as like the first data bro. You know, he's a real numbers guy. He's a statistician. Um, he's got an ultra-systemizing brain, and he he does things like he champions. He's one of the guys who debunks phrenology because the data wasn't good enough. So this idea that you could measure people's characters by their skull shapes, and that's very much in the sort of scientific racist Victorian sort of mindset. But Golden actually is against it because he looks at the data and says, "No, it's not. It's not good enough." Anyway, in this book where he's trying to quantify genius in families, the data set that he uses is the obituaries and opinion columns of magazines. And I just think that's, it's, it's sort of comically funny because his data is literally opinion and he cannot see past that, that his brilliant, brilliant mathematical ultra systemizing brain can't get past the social context of 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 his class and he he cannot see that the uh, <laughs> that these things these these genius uh, geniuses as assessed by opinion writers is actually enormously flawed as a data set anyway that's his first step in to establishing that white men are great and everyone else sucks if you could could you talk a little bit about the figures that opposed eugenics, because I think there's some interesting figures that oppose eugenics, including, I know about this because I had a Catholic upbringing, but uh, there's a lot of Catholic thinkers that were not fans of eugenics. Now, there were religious people that supported eugenics, but there were also people like Chesterton, who were huge opponents of it. And I really want you to be able to talk about that for a moment here. Yeah, sure. So I, I think it's fair to say that 
most people in the chattering classes and the powerful classes in in the UK, particularly, but also in Germany and around Europe and also in the States, were broadly in support of eugenics. And as I said, across political spectra um, and across classes, it wasn't universally supported. And the church is always interesting with regards to these sort of hot political movements and topics. As with slavery, it's a mixed support and resistance. And, the, you know, the church and Christianity is not one monolithic set of values. Now, when it came to eugenics in the UK, the Anglican church leaders were largely in support of eugenics. But Catholic leaders were, were not. And G.K. Chesterton comes out, he's one of the few people that comes out of this whole tawdry tale um, well, in that he... He he's a so for people who don't know. I also have a Catholic background, so he was a he was a, a, a figure that I knew well growing up, a comic writer, a Catholic apologist, very funny, um, uh, 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 comedic writer, wrote an excellent series of detective books about a monk who was also a detective called Father Brown, which which also made some pretty good TV series as well in the eighties or nineties. I forget which. Anyway, he identifies, I think correctly, that the groups who are targeted for enforced sterilization or reduction of their reproductive rights, who, according to the eugenicists, fit into one of multiple categories, some of which are medical, some of which are sort of pseudo-psychiatric, some of them are racialized minorities, and then they get extended to um, epileptics or iterant criminals or alcoholics or women with menstrual troubles. And so the list expands and expands and they attempt, the eugenicists say these are specific categories that are basically genetically encoded and cannot be corrected because they are innate. And Chesterton points out that they're not, none of these categories are really real, that what all the eugenicists are targeting is the poor. And that is, I think that's true because almost all diseases, mental health issues are, are related to socioeconomic status, and they occur at higher frequency in, in the poor than in any other group. And Chesterton regarded this as antithetical to his own Catholicism. I think that's, I think that's a really interesting point of view, because at the time, this is, this is a time when he, he's championing his Christianity as being a bottom-up religion, a religion of the, of the poor, of the people. You know, Jesus as a as a as a working class carpenter, and and he he's, he I, he he regards eugenics as being antithetical to to that. His role in this story is is weirdly significant because just to, I'm going to get briefly into some 1910-12 um, legal policies of in the UK. I realize this is a little bit esoteric, but. Um, Churchill, Winston Churchill was the uh, was the main political driver of of enforced sterilization in the UK. We never got it on the books, despite Churchill's attempts over three or four goes of getting it into the legislature. Legislature was mostly because Chesterton successfully lobbied against enforced sterilization, and particularly to one MP whose name was Josiah Wedgwood the third, so another member of the. Galton, Darwin, Wedgwood clan, who was a, a big L liberal, so a member of the Liberal Party. And he agreed that eugenics was, he said it was uh, um, uh, the enforcement of a scientific creed which may prove wrong within 10 years' time. And that this is this is anti-Christian, it's anti-humanist. Um, anti 
And it was really via Chesterton's campaigning, Wedgwood had the enforced sterilization bills, bits of the bills, removed. And we never had we never had the enforced sterilization on our statute, having invented the concept of eugenics. I was also wondering if you could talk about I know you only mentioned him for about, you know, one or two pages, but uh H.G. Wells and the time machine comes up in your book. And I thought that would be uh, interesting because I haven't heard you speak about it in some of the other interviews you've done. Yeah, well, I tell you a secret. Um, the, the book, the, the copy you've got is pretty much the definitive version. So that's the American version, which is about 20 percent different from the British version, mostly because I in the British version, I delve into some you know very local politics, which are really not of interest to anyone outside of uh, probably a 25 square mile radius from where I'm sitting right now. So I there's the spelling corrections, you know, changing color to color and favorite to favorite in the American version. But there's also much more American politics and the development of American eugenics thinking in, in the version that you've got. And I guess most of your listeners will get. Um, but when I came to Wells in the first version, I I think I might have got him wrong. In the version that you've got, I think it's corrected. But in the first imprint, I suggested that that H.G. Wells was really anti-eugenics and the time machine is an example of, of his anti-eugenics views in that he fantasizes well, the, the story of the time machine is about the bifurcation of society in several, is it hundred, is it 800,000 years in the future? It's some crazy time period. I, I don't remember, but I, I, the thing I always remember is the Morlocks, right? The Morlocks, the, right. right. Yeah. So society is bifurcated and you've got these underground hairy cave dwellers, the Morlocks, and you've got these enlightened, um, surface dwellers, the Eloi, and the Eloi and the Morlocks never interact, but the Morlocks fix the machinery of the Eloi during during the nighttime. And this is Wells commenting on the notion that society can be divided into the poor and the rich. The Morlocks are divided, are derived, are evolved from the working classes and the Eloi from the upper classes, but the Eloi society is collapsing. Anyway, it's a eugenic book. It's a book about eugenics. It's, it's, it's about it's not about time travel at all. I I am slightly proud of the fact that I think this is the only popular science book that cites um, Avengers Endgame, Back to the Future, and Hot Tub Time Machine. I, I'm a massive film nerd, so I try and sneak in as many film references as I can. I don't know whether you picked up on any of them, but uh, that was one of them. Now, I, the reason I say that I got H.G. Wells wrong is because I think I was far too gentle on him. He is positive. He, he's he's anti-eugenics in, in, in in, at times. But the truth is he vacillates. He, you can barely keep up with him, his changing views on a week-to-week basis based on who he's hanging out with. One of his um, uh, pals... There's a guy called Julian Huxley, who is the grandson of T.H. Huxley. Now, Julian Huxley is someone who's, who's, who's I, I can relate to a lot. He was a scientist who became a popular science writer. He co-authored with H.G. Wells a book called The Science of Life, which is a brilliant book. And you can pick it off of Amazon for about 10 bucks. It was written in the 1930s. And he then became a science popularizer. He His first um, TV roles. A little fun fact for you: he he presented popular on on the BBC. He presented um, documentaries about about science, which were directed by David Attenborough. 
as a as a very young man. Yeah, he became the president of the Humanist Association, which I am the president of the current. I'm the current president of the Humanist Association um, in the UK. And so, you know, when I read about Julian Huxley, I I see great parallels. He was also a really strong advocate of eugenics as well, which I I think you can tell am not. So Wells and Huxley, Wells vacillates, he he, he blows with the wind. Um, but what this all indicates, though, which I think is really interesting, really, is that this is a culturally normalised idea. This is an idea which is part of literature. There's songs written about it. There are movies made about, about it. Oh, another thing that Huxley and me uh, are related to, Julian Huxley was the scientific advisor on set for the book, or for the film of H.G. Wells's book, um, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and which is about genetic mutations. And I do a lot of film consultancy, and I was the scientific advisor on set for a film called Annihilation, which also featured genetic mutations. So I just That's like the that. Natalie Portman movie. That's right, yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of that one, actually. <laughs> well, that's great. I, I spent some... I taught Natalie Portman how to pipette if that means anything to you. But um, yeah, I spent some time with her and Tessa Thompson and just working with, I I, I, uh, I act as consultant for all of Alex, Gar- Alex Garland's films. Have you seen Ex Machina? I have not seen Ex Machina, but I'm familiar with it. I, yeah. I do need to see it. Yeah, it's a great film. And in fact, that that is that is Ava's skull. That's, that was given wow. to me as a, as a, anyway, that's, we're, we're off topic here, but yeah, Annihilation is great film. So then, you know, I, I think it goes without saying, we've talked a lot about uh, the UK and eugenics in the UK, but it's really also very prevalent in America. Um, I don't think we need to reiterate that. I think people uh, that are listening to this are probably aware of that. But, you know, what I'm interested in is where do eugenics ideas go after World War II? Because I think people think they've receded completely, uh, which I disagree with. I think you have... Uh, traces of it that that linger on and pop up every so often. I know you mentioned uh, that one academic, he's very associated with the far right now, uh, Richard Lynn gets mentioned in the book. And there's people like Amy Wax, who I think uh, is in the news lately because of her sort of racialist views. Uh, we also see, you know, people like Elon Musk uh, or, you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, when he was alive. There's reports of these people sort of believing in, you know, I have to spread my seed to the world uh, to save the world. So it seems like these ideas still have lingered on. Why is that? Well, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's because this is a mindset. It's not a, a eugenics was never a science. It was a pseudoscientific mindset of, of political hegemonic power reinforcement. And, and I think that some of the elements of, of eugenics in the 19 hundreds the early 1900s are great replacement theory so it becomes sort of formalized at that time the notion that the decadent middle classes or ruling classes are not having enough children but lower class or undesirable people either from within or as immigrants are having too many children and therefore are going to take over um uh, and 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 flood the countries i'm using air quotes again now, this is an idea which is derived from a sort of superficial understanding of the decline of Rome and the fall of Roman civilization. Classical civilizations are always venerated by the eugenicists and by often by ruling powers. Um, now, 
when it comes to people like Musk is a very interesting one. I mean, he's not, he's not a man. He's not a particularly sophisticated thinker on almost every degree. Is, is, that is my view. But last year he tweeted that the greatest threat to civilization is not climate change, but it's declining birth rates. And he's not the first person to express this. And in fact, this is quite a common view held amongst the sort of Silicon Valley tech bro communities that have adopted various new philosophies or emerging philosophies such as long-termism or um, effective altruism. Now, I'm definitely not saying that these things, that these ideas or these ideologies are eugenics at all. And I'm not saying that Elon Musk is a eugenicist, right? But the expression of those types of views is as has, has a very similar sort of thread, genetic thread running through it to the great replacement ideologies of the late 19th and early 20th century, particularly in America, but also in, in Nazi Germany as well. And, you know, sometimes when you say these things in public, people go, oh, God, everything you hate is Nazis or um, or, or, you know, you, you just compare everything to eugenics. I even said myself that I'm, I feel like sometimes I'm a hammer where you know, a hammer sees everything as a nail and I see everything as eugenics. I try not to, I try to mediate this, but it's hard because the language they use is clearly ignorant of the views of the past that are associated with eugenics of the late 19th and early 20th century. And the ideology is very similar. The, populate, the global population is not declining at all. Everyone knows that, right? Every estim, estimate by any sensible demographic uh, demographer is that the population, the global population is increasing and will continue to increase until about the end of this century, where it will stabilize and then begin to decline globally from a peak of something like 9 billion. But within that, many countries, including many white Western countries, including in Western Europe and in America, the birth rates are, are declining. So what when Musk says, and when Nick Bostrom says, and when long-termists and effective altruists say declining, declining birth rates is the biggest problem we face, they don't mean globally. They What they mean tacitly is declining birth rates amongst their own people, right? And I, I think that I think that there's, you know, serious thinkers know that, that they're talking about the specifics. But I think the less serious thinkers who jump on these sort of bandwagons with pseudo-intellectual jobs, people like Musk, they don't have that sort of capable that that reflection or that interest in the history enough to recognize that what they're actually saying is very, very reminiscent of the eugenics policies of the 1920s. Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, exactly the same. He 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 appeared to, I don't know whether he, anyone knows whether he enacted it, but he appeared to want to fill the world with children uh, from his own loins. Um, Elon Musk has said, has declared, how many kids has he got now? We think, we think he's up to 10 by three different women, something like that. But he's explicitly said, I'm doing my, I'm playing my own small part in repopulating people. So, you know, it's a, this is one of the dangers of knowing history. You end up looking at everything through that particular lens. And I try not to do it as, as, as you know, I try not to do it all the time. But it is hard because that's, that is what it looks like. The, the, when people talk about how 
that the predictions are that, for example, in America, that white people will be in a minority by 2050, right? I, don't, I can't remember the exact demographic calculation on that. Well, that's only a problem if you accept the truth that being a minority in America or indeed in England is is of lower status, that people treat minorities worse than they do the, the majority. Otherwise, it's no big deal. Who cares if you're a minority, if everyone's treated the same? And I, I, it's kind of like saying the quiet bit loud. They say, well, white people are going to be the minority in 50 years' time. You're like, well, <laughs> so what's the problem with that? Oh, the problem is that being a minority in this country sucks balls. And that's what you're actually afraid of, isn't it? There were just a few more things I want to touch on. I mentioned that there's you, you can find every so often these sort of academic figures like Richard Lynn uh, or like uh, Charles Murray and the bell curve. Um, now, I don't necessarily think that, that that's you know widespread in academia, but how are we to address these sort of academic figures that give a you know intellectual sheen uh, to these ideas? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know what the answer is, um, basically, because people like Richard Lynn, who I think it's reasonable to describe as scientific racists, um, who have expressed pseudoscientific views about things like the nature of the biological nature of intelligence between different races of, of people, which is a socially constructed taxonomy, um, and continue to publish paper and papers. He's, he's very near the end of his life now, but but his, he and a very small cadre of what I describe as fringe scientists and race-obsessed people, they, they, they publish crappy studies in made-up journals for the most part. I don't know whether any of them listen to this, this show. Um, they don't, they, I mean, they, they, they like the attention that people like me accidentally give them by criticizing them. Um, their, their journals are jokes. They peer review only amongst themselves. They're, it's it's shoddy science, right? And for the most part, proper academics ignore them because they're both wrong and irrelevant. But I think in the last few years, as society has changed and been restructured as a result of the easy access to all sorts of information as a result of social media and the internet, those voices get amplified. And often their arguments are are uh, they're, they're, they're kind of pseudoscientific or they look a lot like science, they look a lot like journal science. And it's hard for punters to know what's the difference between a paper that looks like a paper, but it's from Mankind Quarterly, a ridiculous joke publication that was set up by literal Nazis and Ku Klux Klan members in the 1960s in response to the UNESCO Declaration on uh, Race. Um, but you know, to your average punter, so they look at that and think, "Oh, well, that you know, that looks like a that looks like a valid paper. How am I to tell?" And also, you know, science is hard. Genetics is really hard. Population genetics is incredibly hard. We spend years studying these things and still have very little understanding of how they work. But these guys pop up and they say, "Well, actually, we do know how they work." And this is we're going to explain this. And then when you dig in and you find that the data sets are bad or fraudulent in the case of national IQs that were set up by people like Richard Lennon in the 2000s. They're actually literally fraudulent. And Can you again, explain that a little bit more in detail? Because the thing that 
that you always hear from these figures like Lynn is, oh, you know, I'm telling you what they don't want you to know. This is forbidden knowledge. So like, like what's the best way to sort of debunk these sort of claims? Like if, if you were to say, what, what exactly is fraudulent about the studies? Okay, so so one, I'll give you one particular example, which comes from um, what what Lynn created in the early part of the twenty first century, which was some databases of national IQs. So basically, trying to work out what the average IQs for countries around the world was or is, and they've been published and in academic in the uh, in academic literature and refined several times over over the last few years and what they show what these databases show pretty much every time is that the average iqs in europe and, and america and the wealthy west are significantly higher than in other parts particularly sub-saharan africa where some countries according to these databases the average national iq is one or sometimes two standard deviations lower than the 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 than Western Europe or, or America, right? And you see this, you see this. There's there's sort of graphical representations of this on maps, and where you see that the that, that Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, is dominated by a, a, a color scheme, which is which indicates that their average national IQ is significantly lower, right? Now let's just park the 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 fact that IQs, which I think are a valid test of cognitive abilities, as long as you know the caveats that come with them, which is that they are culturally specific and they can change over time. And, and all of those things which, which decent psychologists know, but let's just park that to the side. Because when you actually look at the data, the provenance of the data that is being cited in some of these databases, what you find is that, for example, I'm looking at the data right in front of me right now, the average IQ for Botswana in one of these data sets is given as 69, right? The average IQ by definition is 100. So that's that's two standard deviations lower. The average IQ for Somalia is 67. For Namibia, it's 66. And for Haiti, it's 83, right? So these are very low. I mean, they're, they're low to the point where you might question if it were true that a country could actually function with people having average IQs of this order, and you think, well, this is this is some pretty shocking data. And then you look at the provenance of the data, and the Botswana sample was 104 native Swana-speaking high school students aged 17 to 20 tested in English. Right. So that whole national IQ of 69 is based on 100 students tested in not their first language. The Somalian sample was um, refugees tested in a Kenyan refugee camp aged between 8 and 18. For Namibia, it was 103 Herero-speaking children aged between 7 and 12. And for Haiti, it was 133 rural six-year-olds. Now, that I mean, you read that out and you go, well, I mean, that's just obvious bullshit, right? Those, aren't, those are not sample sizes or sample provenances that any scientist would even take seriously for a second. And yet... That data set is used and continues to be used and cited in the academic literature. There's a colleague of mine, Rebecca Sear, at the London School of Tropical Medicine, is sort of collating the, the citations for, for these types of data sets in order to, well, to demonstrate that people just use them unquestioningly. So you've got a situation where a, a fraudulent, deceptive, meaningless data set, is, which, which has 
very racialized and racist connotations to it continues to be used in academia for as just a neutral data set. And it's not. It's bullshit. One of the things I always hear, and I'm assuming you've heard this before, is people will say, well, you know, uh, what do you want to do? Do you do you think we shouldn't have taxonomies anymore? Or they'll say, oh, well, you know, isn't, um, you know, screening for Down syndrome and, and you know, allowing women the choice to, you know, uh, decide to abort if their kid is seen to have Down syndrome in the screening. Isn't this a form of eugenics? Or people say to me things like, and I've, I've heard this from people who I don't even consider very right wing and it scares me, but I've, I've had people say to me, well, you know, the Nazis just did it wrong. There's another way to do eugenics. How do you sort of respond to those type of um, thoughts that, that people throw out there once in a while? Yeah, well, that's a big question. And I think the, the first thing to say is that I shy away from using, for, for calling modern interventions like this, like 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 we're, we're talking in this part of the question, I, I shy away from calling them eugenics because it's become such a toxic term that I don't think it helps the discourse and it just becomes sort of entrenched name calling. I do, however, think that a lot of those sorts of behaviors have are, are either they have a thread of eugenics, of historical eugenics within them, or um, they would have been techniques of interest to the eugenicists of the of the 1920s and, and 30s. So, you know, setting aside the semantics um which I think are important because I want to have high quality, high scholarship levels of discussion about this rather than shouting on Twitter about who, you know, I've got, I've got a hashtag on my Twitter, which is just eugenics. And 90% of them are people calling Bill Gates eugenicist um, for, I, I don't know what, for implanting 5G chips in our brains via COVID vaccines or, or whatever. Um, so that's the first thing, right? Now, Many of the techniques developed in labs that were eugenics laboratories, but after the war, the Second World War, um, evolved into genetics, human genetics laboratories, including the one that I am still in to this day. Um, techniques that were designed and invented to alleviate suffering in individuals. So genetic counseling, um, prenatal diagnosis, pre-implantation diagnosis, embryo selection, IVF. All of these are techniques which are to... Um, alleviate suffering in individuals and give choice to parents about bringing children into the world free of suffering or with reduced suffering. And I think that is a qualitative difference with eugenics, which is that it's state-imposed, that eugenics was always top-down. It's we want to reshape society rather than reduce, reduce suffering. Real quick, if I could add to that, I, I, this actually came up in a conversation I was having with someone recently where they uh, offered this idea. They said to me, well, you know, we decide who and who we don't want to have sex with. Isn't that a, is, isn't that similar to eugenics? And I, I sort of just like looked and said, you know, just because we discriminate when it comes to uh, who our sexual partners are, that's very different from, you know, forced sterilization. So I think there's a lot of conflation of ideas that goes on when people talk about this tour, try to defend eugenics. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's it's not an invalid point, to be perfectly honest, because we don't mate randomly, right? We do select who 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 we, we who we partner with, who we have children with. And we select within, you know, various constraints, which are to do with class and demography and geography and and proximity and and all sorts of criteria that we use 
um, subconsciously and actively to choose the people that we have children with. So random, you know, mating isn't completely random. Now, if you want to call that eugenics, well, so sure, fill your boots. It doesn't it, it doesn't work for me because I think that it's useful to constrain what eugenics was and is and wasn't uh, in order to have useful and scholarly discussions uh, about it. But but I, I understand why people say that. Um, I just don't think that's I don't think they're sort of very constructive or useful things to say. Um, but they 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 are then they're not untrue, but they're not I don't think they really fit into the into the discussion that we're having. So, you know, things like and I, the second half of the book is talking about the modern era of genetic engineering and and medical interventions, genetic interventions to to alleviate suffering. And are these I, not- I wanted to talk about that because yeah. uh, you know, I've I've done a few shows on CRISPR, and mm. I think this is an issue that comes up when people talk about CRISPR technology. Yeah, and I think you know some, sometimes. I mean, I know you know about uh, about it, but sometimes I get out. I did an interview earlier today where someone asked me the question: Is CRISPR eugenics? And the answer is, well, no, absolutely not, because CRISPR is a tool, right? CRISPR is a screwdriver. No, it's better than a screwdriver. It's a really sophisticated gene editing tool. And um, not only that, I, I was just going to add to that: it's not just something you can use in humans. This, I mean, the yeah. people who invented it talk about using it for crops and whatnot. So it has many uses. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's no. I, I I tend to shy away from sort of hyperbolic and hypey um, uh, responses to new technologies, but it but CRISPR is one of those ones that has genuinely revolutionised pretty much every aspect of genetics and biology within a very short period of time, within ten years. It's lowered the bar for genetic engineering. It's made it more precise, and it's increased the number of species, number of organisms that we can do genetic engineering. On. 20 years ago, when I was doing my PhD, the organisms that you could do sensible genetic engineering on because we understood the techniques and we understood how they worked were fruit flies, mice, rats. That's pretty much it. A couple of others, maybe. And now, you know, we've extended that range because this tool is incredibly powerful. But it is just a tool, right? And tools can be applied nefariously. They can be applied with... Um, unknown consequences or pernicious, you know, deliberate consequences. And I start the book talking about the case of Hei Jiang Kuei, who in 2018 announced publicly the birth of two baby girls. And subsequently there was a third one um, who he had attempted to genetically engineer using CRISPR to make them um, immune to HIV infection. There's a particular gene called CTR5, where a naturally occurring variant of that gene, which occurs at a frequency of about 1% in Northern Europeans, if you have two copies of that, it, you, are, you, you can't get infected with HIV, right? So his idea was to take, during the IVF process, to take some fertilized embryos, single cells, eggs, and CRISPR in the mutation in the CCR5 gene which meant that they would that the, the, the babies that resulted would not be able to get infected with HIV. The father of the of the babies is HIV positive, and HIV carries enormous stigma in China, much more so than than in, in the West. So that sounds all good, right? The problem is, well, first 
it's experimentation, right? That that qualifies as human experimentation. That is not addressing a medical need. It is not a medical intervention. That is an experiment. And for various reasons, mostly derived from the experiments of the Nazis in Auschwitz and in, during the Holocaust, human experimentation is largely banned, right? So that's the first legal um, um, uh, legal problem with this case. The second thing is that... Uh, it's experimentation because we don't know whether you don't know whether it works. And indeed, the results he presented showed that it hadn't worked. His own results showed that he hadn't introduced the mutation that 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 we know renders people immune to HIV infection. But he went ahead and in, implanted those embryos anyway. And remember, this is a disease which is now you know people's lifespan is in, is increased and can live healthy lives. But most people avoid getting HIV throughout their lives. So he's treating an unmet medical need. Um, so it becomes a legal infringement, a bioethical and moral infringement. And also scientifically, it didn't fucking work. Sorry, can I swear? Um, it, I, I mean, it, it genuinely annoys me this because his insight was and, and moral compass was so screwed on this that he actually announces all of this stuff at an academic conference. There were just two more things I wanted to cover. I, I know we're going a little bit over, but um, the first thing was, and I don't know that you can answer this because it's sort of a philosophical question, but in some ways, do we think too much about, oh, genetics and, and CRISPR technology and all these things as, you know, being the, the go-to solution rather than maybe looking at how can we restructure society to be more beneficial to say people with um, disorders, so, like we mentioned Down syndrome earlier. Um, do, do you think that there's an issue where instead of looking at, well, maybe we should have more community care for people with disability, people look at, you know, oh, how can we eradicate these things? Do you, do you know where I'm going with that? Yeah, I do. I do. And I, it's it, it, these are hard questions to 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 address. Fundamentally, they come down to the question of how we value people in society. We want to alleviate suffering, but do we value people who 100 years ago would be regarded as so undesirable that they should not be allowed to reproduce? So that includes people with Down syndrome, but it also includes people with achondroplasia or people with Huntington's disease or women with menstrual troubles or people with alcoholism or people with epilepsy, right? 100 years ago, these are people who are deemed not worthy of reproduct basic reproductive rights and that culminates in the holocaust with not just re reduction of their reproductive rights but also removal of their life their, their murders now we we progress as societies those those standards have have changed but we still are we we, we still have constant societal issues about the values of individuals in societies who are different. I sometimes, here's the thing which I love thinking about, and I'm sort of developing as an idea. I mention it in the book. Me and you are sitting here and we're we're being very judgmental about the actions of people a hundred years ago or a bit further, who were doing things that society deemed acceptable. And a century on, we no longer find those things acceptable. Real quick, I, I just wanted to add to that. Not just acceptable, but in some ways, the justification 
was, well, this is for the good of society. What they thought they were doing was actually uh, getting us closer to like utopia, you know, sure. that, that they were helping. Yeah. But for whom? And again, that's why eugenics is uh, a, a power-based ideology. Who gets to decide? So I like thinking about the future. In a hundred years time, and when our great-grandchildren are sitting having this same conversation on whatever medium they'll be using in a century's time, and they're going to be sitting there having a conversation about how awful we were and what are the things that we will be cancelled for. If there's a statue to us somewhere in the world celebrating our great achievements, there's going to be yanked down in the year 2123 because it turned out that our views on, I don't know, action on climate change or the fact that we ate a lot of meat or that our views on mental health or the fact that we played, we paid a lot of people to play sports, where which resulted in them getting brain damage all the time. I don't know. I just think it's an interesting way of checking our own existence. And while whilst we're looking at people of the past and saying, "Well, God, wasn't they were awful back then?" They thought it was perfectly okay to take people with achondroplasia and kill them or sterilize them so they couldn't reproduce. And in a hundred years' time, they'll be saying the same or same but different things about us. So again, you know, this is political. Science is always political, but I'm really fundamentally interested in good quality scholarship about these things, because what happens and what all of my work is, is looking at new scientific discoveries and how quickly they get marshaled into pre-existing political ideologies, when actually we don't really know how they work at all. I've been studying genetics now since I was 18, and I'm now 48, so that's... Crikey, that's longer than I thought. Um, that's 30 years. Sorry, I've just had a moment of, of being in my middle age. Um, and I'll be the first person to tell you that whatever you learned in high school, whatever you've thought over the last 30 years of looking at these things, we don't really understand the genetics of eye color. So if politicians or journalists or or even some scientists are out there saying, we are having serious conversations about selecting genetically or engineering genetically um, uh, babies so that they have traits that we find desirable, then they're operating in a world which is very, very dis distinct from what we actually know about genetics. In, in other words, they're talking about something that is a... Uh you know, much farther off, uh, you know, like, like we could talk about CRISPR, but where is the technology at um, compared to, uh, you know, what it could be at, you know, 30, 40, 50 years down the line? Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying that these things will never be knowable. And I'm not saying that they won't be that, that, that we, the, these these technologies won't won't fulfill these 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 desires, these very human desires to want our kids to have the best possible lives, to be to to live pain free or with reduced suffering. These are very reasonable human um, human desires. But when when experts tell you that you can't do that, you can't do this particular technique, and it's not going to work in the way you think it is, or that embryo selection for intelligence is using. It's a misuse of what we understand about the heritability of something like cognitive abilities, which apply at a population level and don't apply at individuals. If you're then choosing an embryo through the IVF process that has the probability of increasing the IQ of your kid 
in 20 years time by one or two points and that's just you know remind, remind you that the error margin when doing an iq test is plus or minus five right so if you if you score 120 it's going to be somewhere between 115 and 125 and that you can increase your iq by a couple of points by drinking a cappuccino before taking the test and the fact that it it changes over time and the fact that these the way that we understand the heritability of intelligence or the heritability of anything works at a population level but not in individuals then it's a waste of money right you know you you you, you we know how to improve education or cognitive abilities in people we, we know we know we, we have all the solutions to these questions already you read books to your kids you have early education, short start programs. You have access to sanitation and and health and access to sports and playing fields. And all of those things have a positive effect on the cognitive abilities of populations. But no, that's way too, that, you know, that, that stuff's way too, way too hard to do. Instead, let's tinker around with stuff that we have literally no idea of whether it works, but it's very expensive. And some guy in a white coat is selling you this product and pray that it wasn't a waste of money. I'm telling you, it's a waste of money. Very last thing I wanted to mention, and it sort of ties into what you were saying, but, uh, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, before we started recording, I said that, uh, I was very glad to see the philosopher, John Gray, who writes new Statesman, uh, comment on your book. He wrote, uh, Rutherford's scientific demolition of the eugenic project is brilliantly illuminating and compelling. His book will be indispensable for anyone who wants to assess the wild claims and counterclaims surrounding new genetic technologies. And I thought it was interesting that Gray commented on the book because I've often grappled with John Gray. Um, I'm a very sort of left-leaning person politically, uh, you know, but John Gray is someone who pushes back on maybe um, the possibility of, of utopian thinking, right? And I think he's important for that reason. And what's interesting to me is, you know, I think eugenics thinking is often based on, you know, uh, utopian desires for alleviation of suffering, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's what a lot of effective altruism is about, you know, uh, oh, we're, we're trying to better the world. I think the issue is that can't there be unintended consequences to uh, eugenics. Like, do, do we really know what we're dealing with when we deal with CRISPR technology? And I guess I wanted you to comment on how there could be uh, unintended consequences to these ideas. No, there, we know that there are unintended consequences uh, because one of the one of the questions I try to address in the second half of the book is is setting aside the morals and the ethics of it is to actually ask the question: Would it or did it work? Because the Nazis eradicated huge populations based on eugenic ide ideologies. And a lot of it was just pure racism. But um, the, the, the more sort of pseudo-psychiatric version of their eugenics policies was looking at things like schizophrenia, right? So in the run-up to the war and during the Holocaust, we think that the Nazis either sterilized or murdered every single person who was diagnosed with schizophrenia in Germany, something like 300,000 people. Right now, the, regardless of what the inheritance pattern of schizophrenia is, we know it's highly heritable, but it's also modulated by the environment significantly as well. It's not caused by a single gene at all. It's a very complex disorder. Some people think that it won't even be a single disorder in 10 years time, whatever. The Nazis managed to kill everyone or sterilize everyone who had schizophrenia in, in Germany. After the war, there's no schizophrenia. For how long? couple of decades. And by the 1970s, when it's next assessed properly, what they find is 
that the prevalence of schizophrenia in Germany has increased and is higher than it was in pre-war levels. You think, well, that's how can that be? Suggest we don't really know the answer to why to to, to why it, why it, that that is the case. Some you might immediately be thinking, well, okay, so some reasons that have been proffered are Germany's open door policy and immigration. Maybe the higher prevalence comes from modern immigrants and post post war years. Well, actually, no, because the incidence of schizophrenia in the immigrant population is lower than in the, the long standing German population. So it's not that. Second might be people have suggested, or maybe it's to do with different diagnostic criteria. Well, yeah, that's a good that's a good reason, but actually it would have the opposite effect because the diagnosis was much broader in the pre-war era for schizophrenia and other conditions. So you'd expect to see the opposite effect. What we actually think is that one of the biggest determinants of schizophrenia in a population is the environment, and it associates very strongly with poverty. And in the post-war Germany, broken by losing a war that they started, what they actually did, the Nazis created the environment in which schizophrenia would thrive. And so if that is the, the, the reason, and I think it probably is, or at least one of one of the significant contributing reasons, then it's a perfect example of how an ideology that embraced a science that they simply did not understand resulted in them having precisely the opposite effect of what was intended. And so when I, I you know, you see this all the time, the history of science is new inventions and other people saying, oh, we can use this to do this because now science has provided the answer. Some guy. I, I was going to. Not to interrupt you, but I was going to say I'm I'm reminded of that old line, you know, uh, the best laid plans of mice and men. You know, those things often go wrong. Uh, you know, and I I think sometimes we have to check our uh, hubris about you know uh, technology and where we're headed with uh, science and scientific advancement. Sometimes we're not as far along as we think, or these ideas can be used in a way that is non-scientific and rather political. Yeah, well, I mean, hubris is exactly the right word. And in fact, when we were talking about being interested in films a minute ago, I um, I know you haven't quite got to the end yet, but I, uh, spoiler alert, I end the book with a quote from, I, I mean, it's so cheesy and cliche to do it, but it's from Jurassic Park and it's not the one you're thinking of. It's not, your, your scientists were so interested and were so concerned with whether they could do it whether they that, that they forgot to ask the question of whether they should do it. That's a good line. That's actually from the film and not from the book. It's not that line, which gets which is a great line. It's actually the line that Jeff Goldblum says later, which is the genetics is the most powerful force the universe has ever known. And yet you treat it like a kid who found his dad's gun. And that's that's it. That's I think I think the first bit of the sentence is totally justifiable. Genetics is what made us what we are. Is the evolutionary force which gave life the only life that we know in the universe. And now that we've cracked the genome and now that we have CRISPR and now that we have these understandings, all of a sudden it's like, well, what can we do with it? And the truth is no one really knows. That's real quick, if I could, um, because I just thought of it. I don't know if you've written about it. I just Googled it. I, I think you've written our core too. When it comes to our understanding of genetics, uh, what are your thoughts on epigenetics? Uh, and for people who don't know, that's sort of looking at the uh, sort of interplay between nature and nurture, uh, sort of 
synthesizing them rather than viewing them as like separate. I, I hope I'm not getting that definition wrong, but I'm, I'm wondering uh, what role does epigenetics play in your thought and what are your thoughts on it? Epigenetics is a part of biology, an important part of biology, which is, it literally means on top of genetics. So it, it is one mechanism for how the environment interacts with the genome. The genome doesn't really change over the course of your life from the point of conception until death, with some significant um, caveats to that, including things like cancer. Um, we, we, what we were interested in as biologists is the interaction between genetics and the environment, which results in a you or a me or a, a, you know, a dog. And there are many ways that the environment interacts with our genomes. Every cell contains every single gene in, in your body, but you don't want all of those genes active at all times. You want genes that are specific to your eyeballs to be active in your eyeballs. You want genes specific to your liver to be active in your liver, right? So there's a very carefully choreographed dance that our 20,000 genes do from conception to, to death. Epigenetic interactions are one of the mechanisms by which that dance is enacted. It's incredibly important. It's it's one of many mechanisms that do this. Gene regulation is the, is the broader field. For reasons that are entirely unclear to me, about 15 years ago, epigenetics became a buzzword for people who didn't really understand what it was, particularly because there was a suggestion that not just epigenetics, but transgenerational epigenetics was a real scientific phenomenon, which was that you could change the way your genome behaved through these epigenetic modifications during your life, and that these would be transmitted to, to the next generation and possibly subsequent generations. It does happen in nematode worms. It does happen in petunias. And as a result of this, in 2009, people started talking to popular press, and particularly a new scientist, um, spun a line which was that Darwin was wrong, that transgenerational epigenetics shows that natural selection is countered by this particular phenomenon. Right? Everyone wants to knock a guy off a pedestal. You'd be the most famous and richest scientist on earth if you could demonstrate that was true. Unfortunately, it's not true. Transgenerational epigenetics has never been shown to work in any mammal. There are some studies which claim it works in mice for certain characteristics. They fall apart under scrutiny. It has never been shown to happen in humans. So the answer to your simple question is that epigenetics is a really important part of biology but it does not in any way refute basic Darwinian evolutionary thinking. Well, I think we'll leave it at that, Adam. Uh, but I do want to say that I really appreciate this book. I think that, you know, the legacy and shadow of eugenics is still around. Um, and that's very frightening to me. In some ways, I'm probably a little bit too paranoid about it. But then I see these figures like Elon Musk running around saying things that I would say are at least quasi-eugenics. Uh, in, in the sort of thinking and the thought patterns. So I think your book is very important. Uh, if there's any one thing you want my listeners to get out of this conversation and to get out of the book Control, what would it be? What, what do you want my listeners to understand the most? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, one, one, thing I, one thing I say about this is that genetics is super complex, right? We, we spend a lot of time experts spend a lot of time decades trying to understand this and you come to the end of that journey and realize you still know you know bugger all about it um but it is the study of sex and inheritance and families and so those are things that people are all involved in and all interested in 
I could, if I was a quantum physicist, I could tell you stuff about quantum physics, and there's no way for you to check whether it's true or not, or whether it has any impact on your life. But if I tell you that your eye colors are the color that they are because of genetics that we don't understand, you're thinking, well, you know, I kind of, yeah, that's, you know, families and parenthood and all those things are things humans have been thinking about for 10,000 years. So this is the thing that I would say. That is the point of science. The whole point of science is to disabuse us of the things that we think are true. It is to remove all of those psychological and historical and cultural baggages that prevent us from seeing objective reality because we are biased machines. We are machines that have all sorts of inbuilt prejudices, some of which we know, some of which we don't know about. The point of science is to reduce those so that we can understand how reality actually is rather than how we perceive it to be. Do you think in some ways that we just have to accept that at the present time, there's always going to be certain unknowns? Uh, because I feel like it, in some ways, that's part of what you're getting at. Like there's certain unknowns about genetics now, maybe they'll be solved in the future, but we have to be comfortable with accepting that right now they're unknown. Most important three words that a scientist can ever say are, I don't know. That's it. Anyone who tells you that they do know is probably selling something. Well, thank you again, Adam Rutherford, for coming on Parallax Views. I really, really, really want people to get the book Control. I think it's an important book, as I said before, and I'm so glad that you wrote it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Adam Rutherford, and you'll check out his book, Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.